Guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, we are back, and we got Dr. Ari Jaffe and Dr. Matt Strauss. Why? Because these guys have been advocates for the harms of lockdown, talking about the, the secondary implications, the unintended consequences, and we want to address that. And I'll tell you my motivation. You know, this is, I recorded this on March 10th, and I still have this worry that Weeks from now, we'll be talking about further restrictions. Are we going to be locking down for increasing cases despite vaccinations and and so forth? And you know, I honestly think that's a mistake. And I, and this is this is my attempt to make a case for it, where we really focus on areas that are of concern, do our best to address some of these secondary uh, negative impacts of lockdowns, and and really make a case on on why we should have more targeted approaches. And uh, I know there's not everyone's a fan of this, but you know, I, you know, I'm uh, honestly, I'm pushed by my kids. I saw how these lockdowns impacted my kids and potentially could be impacting generations from now when there's been areas in the world that have, for example, not been in school for over a year. I mean, that's, that's not, that's not benign. Just a couple of housekeeping things. Sign up for our newsletter, solvinghealthcare.ca our newsletter where we get our latest and greatest content, latest shows, upcoming guests, health tips. It's the money. So go to selfandhealthcare.ca and sign up for that bad boy. You won't be disappointed. Okay. So without further ado, we're just going to jump into it. Harms of Lockdown with Dr. Ari Jaffe and Dr. Matt Strauss. Quadcast Nation, we decided to get some great minds together. Okay, because we are once again talking about lockdowns, the manifestations, what happens as a result, some of the unintended consequences, because as you know, um, this is part of the underappreciated story with with COVID. So we brought some advocates in the mix. We got Dr. Ari Jaffe and we got Dr. Matt Strauss. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. A hundred percent. So Ari, first of all, you're, you're from my motherland, AKA Edmonton, which I uh, got to give some love to my Euler nation out there. But um, you've been actually pretty vocal since it, I, I want to say from the beginning about your concerns about us locking down and, and some of the secondary consequences 
What what did you what what spurred this on and like what what is really pushing you towards being such a a voice? Oh, that that could take the entire podcast. Might cut you off, but here we go. Well, lockdowns. Uh, at first, I, I thought lockdowns were the best option, and uh, my uh, kids, who two of them are in engineering, so they like to analyze things and. They kept asking me questions about them, and I kept looking into it. And I realized that I think like most healthcare workers, I was uh, focusing on only one thing, and that is COVID, uh, to the exclusion of everything else. And being trained in critical care and infectious diseases, I am not trained in making uh, policy decisions and trade-offs, emergency management. Uh, I was focused on COVID alone. And and also some of the initial uh, data that was coming out was very misleading, uh, including the modeling and forecasting and the case fatality rates and the ways that countries were con- uh, trying to control spread. So all of that was, uh, uh, I think, misleading. So what I think changed my mind were two things. One was looking into what the infection fatality rate is as opposed to case fatality rate. As data emerged that there are probably at least 10 times more uh, infections than detected cases, and the infection fatality rate was very low until there seemed to be uh, an inflection point in that infection fatality curve around 65 to 70 years old. And that was also compatible with the high risk groups being by far by age, uh, mm-hmm. those 70 and older and those 60 to 69 with multiple comorbidities were at uh, high risk. And other people, uh, it looked like the infection fatality rate was going to be uh, overall, in those less than 70, as John Ioannidis showed, 0.05%. Uh, so that made me think, why are we locking everybody down when we should really just be protecting people who are at high risk of adverse outcomes? The other thing that uh, swayed me was reading some work by an economist in London, England, called Paul Fridgers. And he was uh, writing that the economic recession can easily be predicted to, in the long term, cause far more deaths and loss of population well-being than the SARS coronavirus, two virus, and COVID possibly could. Mm. So that lockdowns causing an economic recession would cause far more harm than. Uh, benefit, even if it was 100% effective at preventing spread of the virus. And on top of that, there was data coming out that was questioning how effective lockdowns were anyways. And I think the efficacy of lockdowns has been, at best, highly exaggerated. uh, And they're not as effective as uh, we think, which would put the cost-benefit analysis even further in favor of no lockdowns. I guess the last thing was lots of other collateral damage occurring, right? With uh, delayed 
healthcare for other reasons like cancer screening and diagnostic tests and school closures. I'm a pediatrician, so that has huge effects. Uh, a loss of uh, schooling will result in loss of uh, potential future earnings and future lifespan and mm -hmm. uh, development of all these children. And the th effects on the developing countries were even more alarming with uh, many millions projected to go into poverty and food insecurity and uh, uh, tropical infectious diseases increasing. So it just became clear to me that lockdowns were clearly the wrong approach to responding to the pandemic. Yeah, and you make a, a lot of great points in terms of, you know, why we really need to think about such a massive weapon, you know, as opposed to thinking about some more strategic strategies. Matt, what was your story? Actually, I still don't know your story about why you started to be such an advocate for the harms of lockdown. I think it's a, a little bit accidental and and maybe my story is a little bit more personal in that I got married on March 14th of 2020. So uh, my my one year anniversary is coming up in four days. I better Happy not forget. Anniversary. Yeah, I, I, and I don't think I will forget. Um, so it was about this time last year, the final preparations were going down and uh, a worldwide pandemic was called. And so my wife and I, my wife's also a physician, uh, or my then fiance, were trying to figure out if having our wedding was going to cause our grandparents to perish, basically, and, and our uh, loved ones who are elders. So, and, and of course, we were getting anxious messages from even our bridal parties. Uh so I, I spent, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating to say I was spending 10 hours a day on PubMed uh, or, or uh, MedRx, uh, however how you pronounce the name of the, the preprint server. I, so I was, I was, I, there, was a, there was a shining moment there the, in mid-March where I, I honestly thought that I had read every paper that existed on COVID-19 because I was trying to figure out whether I needed to cancel my wedding to save my family. And if we canceled the wedding, I, did, I honestly did not know how I would pick my wife up off the floor because she'd been planning it. She'd, she'd done the lion's share of the work. Um, so we had the wedding. It, I, I always thought people were flattering their spouse when they say it's the best day of their life. It was literally the best day of our lives. And uh, we just basking in the afterglow afterwards. I was like, I can't believe we almost we almost missed the best day of our life up, up till this point. Um, and so that's how I... I, I, I felt like I knew everything there was to know about it. And I, and I, and I had formed some opinions and I, I thought, Oh, I'm going to start sharing them. And I, I had done this fellowship in journalism and I had been publishing in like the national post and vice news previously. So um, I wrote a piece about, you know, maybe lockdowns have a place maybe for a few weeks, maybe we should start letting young, healthy people out in the, you know, two weeks from now. Uh, and that piece was published in the spectator in the UK. Um, and then it kind of all snowballed from there. And and just out of curiosity, did, did you get a lot of heat initially for your your, uh, your um, uh, point of view, or how did that turn out? Initially, no. Um, I would say I got an email from a hospital administrator saying oh, wow. uh, uh, you ought not to do this. And I, it's maybe inadvisable for me to say this, but I and I'm, I'm affiliated with a few institutions. I, I work at a few places we've talked about before, so I don't want to throw any particular institution under the bus or, or bring disrepute on anyone. But um, I, I kind of flipped out when I got this. I called the CMPA um, and the, the physician advisor literally laughed like they, they thought it was hilarious. Um, you know, they looked at my piece and they were like, no, this is all this is all couched in science. Mm -hmm. um, 
you you have every right to do this. And and so I I send a polite email back saying, well, you know, it's a it's a we're in a very serious predicament here, and we need experts to be able to speak freely about what they're seeing and what they're thinking, so that we can come up with the best public policy. Like we're we're not going to, you don't get better decisions by shutting down debate and discourse. Um, and so that was respected. I will say the heat turned up months later, um, kind of in November, December. I was I was fielding more emails like that, but I, I think my position largely hasn't changed. That. Uh, we all need to be speaking openly and honestly and with kindness and, and compassion. Um, but we're not going to get changed. We're not going to get the best policy possible if we're not hearing every perspective. Oh, man. This is the part that I thought was the most alarming about the initial, like, especially in that first wave. Like, you couldn't even use the term seasonality. I feel like that was something controversial. You know, you mentioning some of the secondary consequences of of uh, of lockdowns was controversial. It's all, it was all about you have like stay home, and you know, like that was the only acceptable message. And I, I that part to me was the most one of the most alarming. You know, and like Matt, you're I'm assuming you're actually you said you're about eight years into practice, eh? Like you're is that is that fair? Yeah. So that, like yeah, that's right. You know, like you you there's a certain stage in, in your career, you still feel you, you're walking on eggshells or what have you. So like, you know, especially getting notices like that, but you know, what, from maybe, uh, maybe I'll go to Ari. Like, what do you, what was the most, what, what, what was the most impactful in your mind? Like when, when we think about the harms of lockdown, like what, what got to you? Like, what was the, the, like maybe even stuff that you may be seeing in your own life or in your professional practice, but what was the components that was like to you, like, you know, this is not, this can't be ignored. Um, you know, uh, I don't think there was any one thing, you know, what I've realized for some time that, um, I'm a very, in a very privileged position. And, uh, you know, I'm a physician and I work in the PICU. I had a guaranteed job. Uh, everyone was, couldn't go to work. I got to work mostly from home, go in to be on service, still get paid the same amount. I mean, if anything, I was uh, in a, not working as hard as before the pandemic. So I think what hearing what was happening to uh, people in less privileged positions and to um, how the uh, effects of lockdown were magnifying inequality and extremely harsh on uh, people who already were disadvantaged. That was something that uh, made me realize that these collateral damage effects need to be paid attention to. What about you, Matt? Did anything kind of stick out or was it similar to Ari? Just kind of like several things that just just felt like uh, needed to be addressed. Oh, uh, a few things stick out. So so one thing that I saw um, in one week on service doing internal medicine, I personally admitted two elderly women, both of whom were starving, like admitted to hospital with starvation. They had uh, ketosis and low albumin. 
And so the one, um, she was at a retirement home and she was kind of, uh, had some mild cognitive impairment such that she wouldn't really remember to feed herself. And her family had been coming to the retirement home to feed her. It's not, as you, as you know, I don't know if listeners do, but retirement homes don't feed you, nursing homes do. Um, so, uh, when her family was banished from the premises in the name of social distancing, just nobody fed her and she just wasted away until the, and I, and I'm again, not saying this to disparage the retirement home. They're not set up to, to do this sort of work. Um, but you, you take away those essential family connections and, and this elderly woman presented starving in Canada in, in 2020. Um, and I, there was another woman who, um, she was in a nursing home, but she just started refusing to eat when she, when she couldn't see her family. Uh, and she also presented starving. And, and once she was refed, uh, she was transferred to psychiatry. Um, so th- those two women and seeing them in the space of a, a couple of a single week stick out for me. Um, one is another in, in kind of more personal terms is uh, my, one of my wife's best friends was, a just got hired as a pilot for Porter. And, um, a few months into the, into the pandemic, he was bagging groceries. And I don't know why that, like, I, I know my dad's an airline pilot and I know what goes in, uh, in the amount of training they do and, and the, the hope and enthusiasm they have and to have your career just whisked away from you. He's, he's in his late twenties and he'll bounce back, but that, that was hard to see. Um, another is a physician I'm very close to had to tell someone um, because of, a, uh, I would say, I think over excessively restrictive hospital visitation policies. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't let you see your wife the last week and a half. Uh, she passed away suddenly. And um, that person said, uh, that person I, I, I'm told wailed like an animal, like a, like a wounded animal on the phone to hear that. And I, I don't, um, like, I don't know how to attach a statistic to that kind of suffering. Um, sorry, sorry if that got a little bit dark, but like I, that oh, but it, this, really affected me. That shit is dark. That's the thing, man. Like I, I still will never forget uh, an elder per- a patient, literally beautiful person, like just like gave to the community, big family, the matriarch of the family, uh, dying in, dying alone, not only because of a mix of the visitation policies, but also how fearful people were to come into hospital to see them. And I'm like, we're, there's something we're messing up with this messaging. And then the other, the other thing for me too, that was, I think we failed people a ton was the late presentations that were coming in that first wave, like late presentation, MIs, late presentation, strokes, like totally salvageable, um, you know, conditions, but people out of fear were just like, I ain't coming to get no COVID in hospital. You know, I have a happier story that makes the same point, which is I, I was, my wife and I were barbecuing, uh, in the summer and my next door neighbor, uh, came up to me and said, Hey, can I talk to you for a second? And he, uh, his mother tongue is Korean. He had this like medical translation app and he was like, what is this? And it said myocardial infarction. And I said, it means you should go to the hospital. And I was like, what's going on? He was like, I'm, I get chest pain when I walk. And I said, I said, well, you need to go to the hospital. My my wife was also saying the same thing. And uh, and he was like, is there COVID there? And I was like, actually, no, there's actually no COVID at our hospital today. Like, you need to go to the hospital. And they were like, is there parking? And I was like, yeah, there's there's ample parking. <laughs> <Is there> par- <laughs> they were like, 
is the parking free? And I was like, get in my car, just get in my car. So I drove him to emerge and I, I dropped it. They wouldn't let me in. And, uh, and he, they hooked him up to a monitor and they admitted him with unstable and Johnny. He had a STEMI that night and they, uh, uh, like, but he was absolutely petrified of going in and he got, he got a cabbage the day after. So, um, same point, but I, I felt like because I was being dire earlier, I should I should tell a happier story. That's, that's uh, actually that's an amazing story. To be honest with you, what, the parking though, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's just funny. It's just like, but that's the one thing I don't know if you've appreciated this too, Ari. Like, we I don't know if we've really um, expressed risk. Like, I, I like for example, I think people say for example the. Uh, uh, you're in your mid twenties or whatever. I, I heard the stat that, and I could be getting this wrong, but you, there was a significantly like, I want to say 20 full times more likelihood of you dying in a car accident than you would be from your COVID and from, from acquiring COVID and dying from COVID. And because of the messaging, I think this was something that was completely lost. Like it's not the same when you are 72 with this, uh, type two sugar diabetes. But if you are, uh, you know, a 23 year old healthy individual, you know, like it's not the same. I don't, I don't know if you found the, any inconsistencies in the messaging. Yeah. I think, you know what the um, messaging has been uh, that we're all in this together. And, um, that's a bit misleading because uh, the yeah the I, I get the impression that the public thinks this virus is deadly that if they get COVID they are going to die. I know my uh, mother-in-law was telling my wife that if she gets COVID she knows she's going to die, and I kept saying, "Well, no. Even though you're in your seventies, you still." have at least a, a probably 95% chance that you will survive. But if you're uh, in school and 10 years old, your infection fatality rate is 0.001%. It's far lower than from influenza every year. And uh, even in people under 50, the risk seems to be lower than uh, the infection fatality rate from influenza. And people don't know that. So yeah, people are scared to go to hospital and they're petrified that they're going to get this. And I think the fear is far out of proportion to the risk in, in most people. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wild. Like I honestly, I think if I were, if I were at the time in the bandwidth, I would have like a COVID risk app for people just to be like, yo, plug this in and see what your legit risk fa factors are for acquiring this. And, and like, you know, it's, we all have to do our part to like not propagate the COVID and spread it to people that you don't want to get COVID. But also, I think there's there's consequences of being too fearful that we're, you know, that we're exactly what we're we're talking about. Um, so like Matt, like what if you had the how do I put it like the authority to 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 change things? So like, what are the main kind of approaches or changes that you would have liked to have seen during different parts of this pandemic? I think uh, what Ari was driving at, um, we, we understand that the risk is different to different people. And I, I would, I think that 
the Canadian public, but also public health establishment is, is um, uh, nuanced enough to make this sort of tailored approach and, and to focus protection on the people who needed it the most. And we haven't done that. Um, we spent $450 billion on the pandemic, on the pandemic strategy that we chose, which, which involved uh, paying 16 year olds, $2,000 a month to watch Netflix in their basement and not go out. Um, we could have taken all that money and built absolutely ironclad nursing homes. Um, Word. $450 billion for reference, it would be enough to build two brand new hospitals in every city in town, every city in town in, uh, in Canada. So it, it's, uh, it, it seems like a, an extraordinary, and we know this from other areas of public health. Like we, we don't, we don't give um, HIV prevention medications to uh, every high school senior at prom night. We, we HIV prevention medications are amazing. They're life-saving. They, they've done so much to reduce HIV, but they're generally prescribed to people who are in very high risk categories. Um, so, so by and large, that's, that's what I would have liked to have seen. I would have liked to see tons of resources. Like COVID is a serious illness. I've seen it kill people. Um, but we, we could have saved so many more of those lives by focusing our efforts on the people who we knew uh, back in the spring were most likely to die. And um, that's what I think was missing. 143%. I, I still, it still baffles me how we haven't focused our energies on the high, like on the truly focused our energies on the high risk areas. Like long-term care, we got the, I mean, the gift has been the vaccine at this point. Mm-hmm. That's what's going to save that scenario. But there's still going to be the under understaffed IPAC, you know, I'm not sure IPAC levels at each nursing home is going to be up to what we'd call standard. Um, you know, I think a lot of places are making some modifications to ensure that PSWs aren't going to multiple sites. But man, like we really like the, the vaccines saved that environment, but we still didn't deal with essential workers, multi-generational homes, um, other areas where we think, you know, that are the major sources of spread. We just decided to go, yo, we're going to go heavy handed on everybody and, uh, and see what uh, the results will be. Can I, and can I add one other thing to my, to my answer? Yeah. My, my other major interest is philosophy and I I hate to use the word, but, but morality. Um, And I, I just think we're, we're at risk of losing the essence of medicine when we make pronouncements uh, you know, on the order of commands to folks that like, you must stay home um, and your job is non-essential. So we're canceling your job. Um, and I, in my practice, I'm very sensitive to um, issues surrounding informed consent. And I don't think that Ontario modeling data or, you know, today's daily COVID case count can tell you whether your your father's funeral should be canceled or not. Like, I think the way we build value in our lives, the things that, um, people find meaningful uh, cannot be captured in those statistics. And so it it was a real, um, I don't want to say breaking point for me, but it it was a really, really hard day for me when um, Ontario was playing, maybe we will, maybe we won't cancel Christmas. And and I thought like that, you know, people in different communities uh, in uh, different parts of the, of the province, Christmas means different things to you. And it's not for, I don't think for the government to say whether it's on or not based on, um, statistics. Like I, I, and I, I, I just really fear that we're moving away from 
a, a medicine that is grounded in individual values. So that's another thing that's caused me a lot of concern over the last year. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the value, I didn't think we had an, a situation to express our values. Like, like for me, my line in the sand when I got my big boy pants on was when they started to affect my my kids. When I saw that they were starting to do some bullshit, closing schools like in Ontario, like where I live in Ottawa, when they decided to reclose the schools, it was we had three patients in ICU in a city of one point, we'll say two million. I was like, no, nah, this mm. is ridiculous. No, my kids' education, my kids' well-being, no. Gloves were off at that point. You know what I mean? Like, that was kind of like my, and I and I feel like a lot of Canadians, when it come, at least when it comes to their kids or the youth, this is where they they get, or at least for me, this is when I was getting uncomfortable, knowing that your, your our impacts cannot just be, affect them directly right now, but could be generational. To me, that to me, that's when it just got to me, and I said, like, this is unexcusable. And I, I, I you know, because everyone's got their, you know, their tipping point. And, and when I think, you know, when I'm gone and these guys got to live their lives and they can't afford a house, they can't own a house, uh, uh, they're still paying for the mistakes we made. I, I just was like, we could do better, you know. I mean, I don't know, Ari, if that had, that you felt something there too. Well, if I can, I will tell you what I think should have happened, and I'll be blunt because uh, not being blunt hasn't worked. <laughs> so I should have said the quote I was looking for is that Teresa Tam wrote in her report uh, on uh, public health in 2020. The main uh, quote is, no one is protected until everyone is protected, and that is just plain false. And to me, that shows that public health should not be in charge of a pandemic. And a pandemic is a public emergency. It's not a public health emergency. A public emergency means it affects uh, every sector of society, not just the healthcare system. And that's why uh, the mistake uh, was to give the response to the medical officers of health. That was a big mistake because the people trained to manage a public emergency are the emergency management organizations. Every province has one. They uh, helped write the pandemic response plans, and they know that in a pandemic, the uh, goals are not just mitigation, but uh, they have to ensure critical infrastructure is ready for people who get sick, and they have to uh, maintain the economy and they have to maintain life as normal as possible. And unfortunately, public health, like being medically trained, were focused on COVID alone. They are not trained in making trade-offs and policy decisions. And emergency management is, and I've been talking a lot with a, an emergency management expert, David Redman, who is ex-military, and he uh, was in charge of emergency management Alberta uh, and in charge of Canada's uh, counterterrorism uh, in, uh, after 9-11 and has many other um, uh, experiences. And hearing him talk about emergency management principles and the process, 
uh, showed me that, uh, yes, he's right. Medical officers of health are not trained. So the way it's trained to respond to a public emergency. And what um, uh, the, the agencies involved, there's uh, public health has to be involved. And what they should have been tasked with is uh, how to protect long-term care homes and how to uh, get hospital surge capacity, including ICU surge capacity. And surge capacity does not mean canceling healthcare for everything else. It means being able to manage a surge without canceling healthcare for everything else. And uh, so, and protecting long-term care homes, uh, the best way would be to quarantine them. Right now, the entire society has been quarantined with hard lockdowns and this uh, um, false claim of circuit breakers that were supposed to last two weeks and instead last for several months. They're lockdowns. Um, and quarantining long-term care homes would mean quarantining the patients and the staff, and they'd work a month on and a month off and long-term care homes would be protected. Um, uh, and having adequately paid staff uh, that are trained in, um, adequately trained. Um, so we could have done far better with long-term care homes with an emergency management response because the first principle of mitigation is to remove the uh, vulnerable people from the risk. And we knew right away the vulnerable people are older people, especially with comorbidities, especially 70 and older, and especially in long-term care homes. And in the first wave, that was 80, over 80% of the deaths from COVID. And then we had four months to prepare a better strategy for long-term care homes, including quarantining them. And even uh, older adults in the community could voluntarily have quarantined with uh, um, voluntary caregivers at home, or we could have made long-term care type facilities for more vulnerable older people to live in at the highest risk time. And uh, I like where you're saying $400 billion could have created these hospitals. You know, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms has a quote in their paper where uh, back then, it was far less than $400 billion that had been spent, but they said in the first wave, for that money, we could have put every single older person in a four-star hotel with a personal attendant, and it would have cost less. So I honestly think that uh, it should have been an emergency management agency in charge, and the messaging should have been who is really at high risk, how are we going to protect them, how are we going to maintain the economy? How are we going to maintain life as normal as possible, including kids going to school and uh, not uh, disadvantaging people who are already disadvantaged? So I think that um, yeah. you know the focus on lockdowns was misdirected. And in fact, even in October 2019, which is quite a coincidence, one month, before COVID-19 broke out in Wuhan, who updated their pandemic response plans. And they said quarantine should never be used, period. 
in any pandemic. That's in an influenza pandemic, even as bad as if it was as bad as 1918, they said quarantine should never be used. And then the first thing used has been quarantine. So it, nobody went by the previously well thought out pandemic plan. Yeah, I mean, a lot of decisions, I don't know if they're emotional, but they were certainly fear-based. But you bring up a, a, a point that I've, I've always, that's always bothered me, even from, even say from a public health perspective. My concern was always been you need to be, it's public health, all aspects of health, not public COVID. You know what I mean? And so, like we were just, it's, it's right now it's March 10th and we, the um, government of Canada put out uh, access death document that neither of us have dived into in any detail yet. But th- the point is that there's been some excess deaths related to secondary, impl- uh, secondary impacts of uh, lockdowns. Um, but this was a thing that always bothered me. It was that we weren't doing anything to kind of address some of these secondary risks, even like the mental health. Like imagine that some of that 450 million was it, you know, free mental health services for Canadians. Like, you know what I mean? Like something to show that you're at least addressing some of these areas of concern. And there's something that the three of us have that is a bit, I don't know, say unique to a lot of the experts that you're seeing is in our daily jobs, we have to always look at things holistically. You got all these lovely consultants that will say, you know what, you need to dry the hell out of those lungs. I'm going to dial up that uh, dialysis, please. Or, you know, or, uh, you know, as per the cardiologist or the, the, the nephrons telling you to give more fluid, you know, like you're always balancing the, the multiple opinions and perspectives of, of your, of, of the experts, but ultimately you're trying to do what's best for the patient. And this is the, the perspective, like, it's been like, what is going to be the best for everybody? What's the solution that's going to be the best for everybody? And getting one of the match points was, you know, in terms of these like models and stuff, I'm like one time, I just want to see the modeling for, I don't know, uh, cancer deaths from delayed diagnosis or delayed surgeries or overdoses that we're seeing. Add that to your bloody model instead of just showing this exponential curve that's never been close to right. You know what I'm saying? And and people making decisions based on these crazy models. You know what I mean? Oh, my. The the forecasting has failed every time. The forecasting has failed. John Ioannidis wrote a paper on that, too. The forecasting has failed even for next day numbers. The models are not accurate. And anyway, I have to uh, apologize. Maybe I got a bit heated there. No, that's <laughs> good. Had to bring it back down. No, no, so, that's good. Um, this is this is what we try to keep it real on the quadcast. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's good. People want to see emotions from physicians. You look like you were going to say something, Matt, but maybe I'm just reading. Oh yeah, no, I. Uh, I mean, I think the really going to have to have a good think after this is all over. But what is the place of modeling? in a totally new situation, in a totally new emergent situation. Um, Because uh, as already mentioned, almost all of the models failed in retrospect. I remember finding it straight, like I'm interested in modeling, like I I like math and I'm interested in what they do. Um, Some of the models, my my best man and best friend is a a math professor. He he picked apart some of of them 
And, and there were kind of elementary errors made in some of them, you know, so assuming that everyone who died of COVID would die in an ICU and as a palliative care physician and intensivist, I, I imagine, you know, ways that, that, that doesn't end up being the case a lot of the mm-hmm. time. Um, and I remember reading the, the modelers papers and just, and I just found it bizarre that they're putting the, their predictions in the results section. And I'm like, that's, this isn't a result. This is, this is a prediction. Like the result is two months from now when we see whether this happens and then, and it's your model's not evidence. Your model's a, your, your model's not evidence until it is validated by correctly predicting things. And, and then even, even then, uh, you know, there's philosophical concerns. Um, so I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm really skeptical about a lot of things. And unfortunately um, in my practice in ICU, just watching it develop over the last 10 years, that skepticism keeps being borne out uh, again and again. Like every, most of the things I was taught in medical school about critical care have, have since been invalidated by a international multi-center randomized control trial. Um, and I, and I, I think we're just going to have to turn this sort of skeptical eye to, to modeling, particularly when you're shutting down people's businesses and canceling funerals and, and weddings and, and increasing uh, rates of malnutrition in the developing world uh, based yeah. on model results. Yeah, that, that to me is what what was kicking it was like, yeah, you OK to be wrong. It's like you're a meteorologist. Like, I mean, if you're saying it was going to like be 15 degrees and it ended up being 12, like, OK, no biggie. But when you're like, yo, traffic can't come to this area. You guys can't leave your homes based on this. Quit your job. You know what I mean? Like it, there was a lot of decisions based on this. Like, I mean, I don't know if you got a piece of this in, in Alberta, but we had, I think it was in February, like Ford coming on the mic being like, wait till you see these projections. You will go shake, you'll shake in your boots based on these variants of concern. You will shake in your boots. Cases started, to, cases went down. You know what I mean? I like literally just, yeah. went in the opposite direction. I am literally going on national news and I'm, I'm holding myself back saying like, you see, you, you guys were getting, getting all hyped up about this. They're going down in cases. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah. I don't know. That's what I, was killing me. So not to pick fights, but so I think, I think Dave Fishman's on the record on his Twitter saying a tsunami of deaths are coming around that yeah. time. That, and Eileen Davila, the Toronto uh, medical officer for health uh, went, in front, in front of television cameras and said, we're at the start of the third pandemic. This is the yeah. third pandemic. I've never been more scared. Um, and again, it's, it's okay to be wrong, but we, we, we need to learn from missed predictions. Yeah. One of the principles of emergency management is uh, you can tell them that you're worried, but you don't tell the, all the public that you're deathly scared because that tells them that, that you have no clue what to do. And what you need to do is uh, have confidence in the response so people will listen. You, you tell them, now we figured out how to protect older citizens. Now we figured out how to make sure the healthcare system can look after you. So you can have trust in us where you can say we're worried, but uh, we can get on with the economy and our lives and stop all this devastation. That was one of the, uh, I think, a bad thing to say you're deathly afraid of what you're seeing. Can you imagine getting that message, though? Like the confidence that would build the, I don't know, I get maybe it's. Maybe it's, I'm, I'm tired, but just I get chills just thinking about that public health message of saying, you know what, like 
we we ha- we have confidence that we can handle this. And like this has kind of been, I mean, this on my platform has been a, the lens of positivity, what we can control. And but just he- hearing that message on a regular basis, that's why I thought I really liked Bonnie Henry when it came to like the overall kind of. Um, I got it out of all the public health leaders. I think she was the crown jewel when it came to how to communicate consistent messaging, simple messaging, um, you know, controlling what you could control. But Ari, just, you know, just hearing that kind of approach, like throughout the pandemic that, you know, having that vote of confidence. Um, and the other thing that I really like too, about kind of thinking about focusing on where the problem spots are, like from that emergency response, like when like put most of your energy, like I'm a big um, 80, 20 person, like big on uh, Pareto's. Like if you know where the bulk of the problem is, put put most of your energy where the bulk of the problem is and you will see a significant re- reduction in, in all measures, death, hospitalization and so forth. Um, so those principles that you, you mentioned, because this is the first time I'm hearing this. I don't know if you've heard this emergency response uh, uh like, I don't know if you've heard a lot about that, Matt, like, uh, but this is the first time I'm hearing about this avenue. I think there were a few articles. Was it, uh, was it a Redmond was the, the, the yeah, Redmond. Yeah, yeah. I think he, he made a bit of a splash in the Alberta media around November. I want to say, so I saw a few articles where, yeah, he's extremely cogent, obviously has spent his whole career doing this, takes it very seriously, knows a lot. And, and yeah, I think, uh, I would have felt much more comfortable with, with, him in charge of the response overall. I, and just in terms of being positive and uplifting, I, I thought there was, there, were, there was a chance missed there where I think, when, you know, when I was 18 or 24, or, you know, I, I was constantly looking for um, opportunities to be a hero. And I, I think there's a whole generation who um, could have been called to be courageous um, and, and and not even that courageous because they're at very low risk of dying. And we could have said, like, here's how you can help um, take care of the elders in your community. Wow. Yeah. Um, here's how Great you can food. volunteer at nursing homes. Here's how you wear protective equipment so that you can um, not infect them. Um, and and instead, I, I just think the message of be very scared and stay at home um, was such a missed opportunity for um, for. I, I feel bad calling them kids, but for young adults to, to be heroes. Um, and so. and the, 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 honestly, I mean, I look back at, uh, I mean, they're probably older than 18 to 24, for example, but people were looking to, to serve. Like I really, mm-hmm. like I was even thinking about some of our trainees that we, we went through a run in March where because of the, the, like the, people were coming back from vacation and so they had to quarantine for two weeks and all these kinds of stuff. So we were down residents big time. Like it just, it was just bad kind of coincidence and the amount of people that were willing to step up and in, in a new, like, well, this was March, April when we don't, you know, there was still a lot of, you know, unknowns about the virus and, and the dangers to ourselves without hesitation, you guys need help in ICU. I'm going to step up. These are people in their twenties. That, you know, that had their full lives ahead of them that were willing to to do their part. And so like hearing that too, just that whole angle of what can you do? What can we do? I even think even the messaging, like what drove me nuts, this is the other time I actually, I think one of the public health uh, complained about me. They're talking about like, 
you know, masking outdoors and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, this is ludicrous. Stop wasting your energy on, on this shit. It's a distraction. Tell people what they could do outside right now. It's December. Tell them they could go walk outside. They could play hockey at the rink. That's some safe shit. You know what I mean? And this is going to go it's better for morale. It's better for their physical health. Like we've seen the risk factors for those that come in with, with COVID. Like let's, let's try and have that positive slant on it. And you'll have the faith of the people, you know, people like if you really did actually need them to clamp down and, and bear down for a period of time, they'll be more engaged in it because, you know, you have their trust. But man, double mask outside. You know what I mean? Like, Jesus, put on, you know I mean, like, do, do I need to wear a helmet when I drive too? you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's just getting it's just like, relax. Anyways, um, now I'm starting to get heated. Um but I, I, I just really, what I hear that, that positive messaging, like uh, that really, I think that would have served so many people so well uh, in terms of what you can do. Um, Even what you're saying now, it would have been an opportunity to uh, in, uh, decrease risk factors. People could have been told, go outside, get exercise. The biggest risk factors uh, to your mental health and from uh, COVID will be reduced by getting exercise. And uh, but instead, uh, sedentary lifestyles have markedly increased, even in children, because yeah. they're not allowed to uh, go out. Even in me, I, yeah. like my my fitness has plummeted over the last year, and I I know the risk factors. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so like I, I remember thinking, and I, I put up some tweets about it uh, in in April or May, where I was like, "Listen, you're off work. Everything's closed. Now is the time to learn how to run." I didn't necessarily take my own advice. I, I had a stressful year uh, uh, professionally, but um, yeah, I, I would have been so happy to see a, uh, a kind of a root cause analysis and a and a, a, a real national. I like I, one a paper came out recently. I think showing that two thirds of COVID mortality can be explained by metabolic uh, syndrome, oh, type that, 2 diabetes. I, absolutely. Just yeah. look at your ICU. I've had one patient in this a year of this pandemic that had, they were older, but maybe had not even pre-diabetes, but like was healthy, I mm-hmm. think. Maybe one. Mm-hmm. And at so many diabetes, pre-diabetes or straight up diabetes, obesity, like it was clear metabolic syndrome was a massive driver of what we're seeing. And I don't know if you noticed this too, Matt, but some of them had wildly difficulties, difficult times trying to control their sugars while they're, they're sick in the unit. I don't know if yeah, you noticed that. Absolutely. But um, yeah. And this, because uh, to me, the lost opportunity too is like in May, June, July, when COVID was like, huh? Mm-hmm. Like really, hey, guys, you know, we're worried about a second wave. Let's talk about second wave. Let's reduce risk. You know what I mean? Let's let's get out there, exercise, think about what you're eating, and just improve your improve your chances of uh, dealing with this bad boy. You know what I mean? But yeah, they did do a bit of that in Britain. I understand they they took the opportunity. I think they they put a, some crazy amount of money into bicycle lanes. I think like ten billion dollars uh, this past summer in Britain. I don't actually know if, if they, if, you know, if there were shovels in the ground yet, but that was, uh, I saw a few articles about that and that, that was very hopeful to me. Well, that's excellent. I mean, also, you know, the, those benefits go beyond COVID, you know what I mean? Like, uh, 
you know, cardiovascular risks, uh, stroke, cancer, like you name it. And uh, environment, even what you're talking about, making your city more bikeable, walkable, social um, connection. Like you're, you're, you don't, you don't stop your car to talk to your friend, right? You, you, you might honk. That's another, that's another one, by the way, like <laughs> people, I don't know. I don't, they're calling this, I don't know the term they're using, but people are having more awkward conversations now when they see each other because they haven't had to talk to people in a while, but like uh, connecting again has been, yeah, I want to say a little bit more challenging because a lot of people haven't spoken to other human beings or interacted face to face with it, with other individuals for years or months. Sorry. That, was on, that was on SNL a couple of weeks ago. They had a good skit about that where oh, really? the two people who met up completely forgot how to talk to live people. <laughs> Oh, my two-year-old, is he's kind of in that predicament. He's Anytime he sees humans, he's just like, no, I'm going I'm, I'm to run. No, I'm, I'm just going to straight up sprint, dad. I, I had an experience where um, I was I was talking to a learner in the hospital. And I, I, I think I said something. I, I sometimes have a dry sense of humor. And so I said something and I was smiling broadly, but I was wearing a mask. So my <laughs> eyes were squinted and the learner looked at me and said, I'm so sorry. I can see that you're very angry right now. And I'm like, no, my eyes are squinting because I'm smiling so hard. And uh, so who, uh, who knows how many misconnections have happened because people think I'm just walking around the hospital very angry when I'm when I'm actually smiling. That Dr. Strauss, what, what a oh, man, Did you see that look he shared there. Oh, my goodness. No, I, I'm hoping we're not that far off from really starting to shed some of the restrictions. Like, uh, I think that it's huge that we're, I mean, I think people don't really, this is another area where I think people were failing a bit is communicating the effectiveness of the vaccines. Like you you hear them saying the efficacy is 68%, whatever, but like when you're talking about reducing hospitalizations and deaths, like, wow, like this is where the focus should be and, uh, and, and celebrated, you know, Well, the thing I don't understand is proponents of lockdowns said lockdowns are to buy us time till we get vaccines. And now that we have vaccines and we're vaccinating all those in long-term care and older people, they're saying, whoa, whoa, you know what, we can't open up because we're worried about these variants of concern. They labeled them of concern. But like you say, even probably with variants of concern, the vaccines will reduce severe COVID hospitalization and deaths, even if they don't prevent mild cases. So we got, by a miracle, we got our vaccines, and it's still not enough. I mean, it's, uh, I I honestly, I don't know. Part of me wonders if, I mean, at least a fear mongers. I, sometimes I, I feel like they just want to stay relevant. Do you know what I mean? Like if you're an epidemiologist that's been getting attention for a year, you're about to lose some love soon, man. This, this, you know what I mean? Like you're you're hanging on to getting, you know, those news those news agencies aren't going to be calling as often. Those media agencies aren't going to be calling as often because I, I honestly I don't I don't see how we can't be optimistic right now. I don't, I don't get it. I can understand why news agencies want to like more headlines or whatever, you know what I mean? Like, Oh, there's a new variant in New York or whatever. But like, if we're talking a 
the big picture, getting out of this pandemic, man, having those vaccines is massive. Well, and if it's not the vaccines, then what is it? Like, exactly. Literally, it, it, the, then what? Then we just lock down forever? And I, I humorously, I have a, a member of my extended family, let's say, who's who's anti-vax, uh, but pro-lockdown. And I'm like, well, well, should we just lock down forever then? Like, if, if, if the vaccines aren't the answer, then then like just just let me take my lumps like um there's only i or this is another argument i made it's just from a utilitarian perspective like suppose we all live a hundred years which we don't and suppose the mortality from covid is one percent which it's not um how many years would you spend in lockdown to not to not get it and like the math ends up being one year that that that's kind of the pot odds of, of how long you you would spend um but it, it just it just starts to not make sense to not live your life at some point and yeah. and we have to if if if, if, that, if that point's not the vaccines then i i don't know what to do i, I don't know what to do for you yeah exactly and that's assuming two things one that lockdowns work which they do not work nearly as well as people have been claiming many studies have shown and two that they'll actually be a benefit to them in terms of their lifespan and the evidence again shows that that's false too. Oh yeah, no, I, I'm I'm giving them those premise. I'm giving them those premises. Um, yeah. uh, just because I, I've, I've been arguing that those parts for for a year, and and uh, yeah. I have very yeah. I have not much fight left in me uh, on those points. But <laughs> but if yeah. and so and I can understand. So I've had one dose of the vaccine, um, which I mean, eighty twenty rule is, is most of the benefit already. Uh, so I can understand how it would seem unfair if I got to go to the Caribbean now and I got to take off my mask and while other people are waiting, I can see that there would be some uh, hard feelings if I, if I had special privileges, let's say, but, but that that's just an emotional argument though. There's, there's, there's actually not much of a reason that I need to be, have travel restrictions and not wear a mask. Statistically, like it, it's, it's quite improbable that I'm going to get COVID or give it to anyone at this point. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I, and um, like I was asked the question, when do people get to hug their grandparents or when they get the vaccine or whatever? I'm like, literally, you ask yourself, what more do you want? What more do you want to be able to to make this happen? Um, and not to be dire again, but you're not always going to get to hug your grandparents. Like there is a finite number of times that you have the option of hugging your grandfather and yeah. That's not forever. I think we all know that, given what we do for a living. A hundred percent. That is a very good point, and um, it also ties for me to in that argument about risk, like like uh, cost benefit of of a lot of our actions. Like if I'll say this, like if I'm 83, 86, whatever it is, the idea of not being able to connect with my family or or my grandkids for extended period of times. Like I, I want that. I want an option to to be able to make that decision because you know there is there there's value in that. You know what I mean? There's value in having that connection of of being with your loved ones, and um, I just think um, that 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 part was kind of forsaken in all of this conversation. So I actually had this conversation with my grandfather the day before my wedding, because I wanted to explain to him what his risk was, but given all the reading that I'd done and that I wouldn't be offended if he chose not to come. 
he was offended that I asked. He was like, I wouldn't miss it for the world. And he he meant that. He he he's a he's a very smart man. He he knows what COVID nineteen is, and he 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 under he understood the risk. Um, but he was in a position prior to the lockdown to make the choice for himself, and that's the choice that he made. There was this terrible terrible article about a ninety two year old woman who chose medical assisted dying uh, rather than go through another lockdown, and it, it's um, yeah, I I really. I really worry that we're not, I, I, maybe I'm repeating myself. We're not taking individual values into account when we tell someone we're locking you down in your nursing home and not letting you see your family for we your absolutely own absolutely did not. For your own good, we're, we're putting you in solitary confinement. And it, it, that's, that's not, that's not medical ethics as I understand it. Oh man, you imagine you, like some of them are half blind or half deaf. You can't walk, like you literally are doing nothing in a room for weeks. Like that's torture. Yeah. The the life expectancy for someone admitted to a nursing home in Canada is 18 months. And so if you tell them we're taking 12 of those months and not letting you out in order to make sure you get the last six months, I don't think that's a deal I would take. And I don't, and maybe some would, maybe some wouldn't, but we didn't ask. Yeah. We didn't ask. And I know personally, there's no way I would take that. And my loved ones, when we talk about it, there's no way they would take that. You know what I'm saying? I should clarify when I said quarantine long-term care homes, that means volu- one voluntarily and two with adequate uh, facilities for uh, visitations, even if there has to be uh, an amount of uh, social distancing during yeah. the visits. Uh, but um, yeah, I agree that uh, right now we're taking we're taking away people's charter freedoms and the charter says that can only be done if uh if there's due diligence uh to prove that it's the only option and uh due diligence means a cost benefit analysis and that was not done amen amen team i i just want to thank you for this amazing discussion amongst I want to call it like the great minds of uh, critical care and infectious disease. Guys, this was honestly, it was uh, informative. It was um, inspiring. Made, makes me glad that we are doing what we can to advocate for, uh, you know, doing our piece for advocacy for sure. But yeah, thank you, Ari. Thank you, Matt. And uh, hopefully we'll have you guys on again soon. Love to. Thanks thanks for having me. It was awesome. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Podcast Nation, thank you for listening. I really enjoyed that conversation with Ari and Matt talking about consequences and the harms of lockdowns. And I, I just, you know, I think it's an important conversation so we learn in the future. To I think it's important to be able to approach these things in a more holistic fashion. So um, we're going to keep bringing up that content. Uh, as much as as much as needed really but hopefully we're on the better side of this thing leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com follow us on instagram youtube twitter at quadcast leave that five star rating you know what i'm saying leave it on uh itunes it helps with the visibility of the show leave a comment there as well and uh guys thank you so much for the support we feel the love And it's all about just changing that boogie, y'all, for real. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.